leading the Tao Te Ching is always an adventure. It's always an exploration in human spirituality. It's always a journey that brings just as much obscurity as it does clarity, that raises just as many questions as it does offer answers. In fact, the Tao Te Ching offers very few answers at all, and when it does, they are usually cushioned in between verses that make us question even the answers themselves. And one thing that I've learned is that it's just as important to let the Tao Te Ching read me as it is for me to read it. As I approach chapters, especially short ones like chapter 40, I feel that there is something profound there, and yet I cannot quite put my finger on what it is. Yet I find myself following the train of thought that the chapter brings up, or following the thread of meaning that I find that connects it to my own life. And I find myself discovering things about myself, about the world, about spirituality. Chapter 40 is indeed a great example of that. The chapter says, The way is both a journey that ends in return and a submission to this simple truth. The myriad creatures exist this way, from non-being to being and back infinitely. Certainly at first glance there is nothing obviously clear about this chapter, and yet today I want to invite you, as I explore the meaning behind this chapter of the Tao Te Ching, that ancient book of Chinese wisdom and spirituality that didn't draw me away from a Christ-centered faith, but actually helped me hold on to it. Hi, my name's Corey Farr, and this is episode 28 of A Christian Reads the Tao Te Ching. If you haven't listened before, in this series I work through the Tao Te Ching from beginning to end and talk about all the ways in which I have found it to be relevant and profound and impactful uh, on my life as a Jesus follower. Again, if you haven't listened before, it's best to go back and listen to episode one, which kind of lays the framework, uh, talks about what the Tao Te Ching is and um, sort of what my methodology is for using it and how I apply it to my life as a Jesus follower. Uh, you can also um, check out my blog where there's a series of articles that follows these, uh, these episodes, although it goes into quite a bit less detail. Uh, but you can check that out at coreyfar.com. That's C-O-R-E-Y-F-A-R-R.com. In today's episode, we're going to look at chapter 40, which is extremely short, as you just heard. Uh, this chapter talks briefly about the nature of reversal and return, and then the origins of all things that come from non-being. Uh, rather than trying to do a very detailed analysis of every word, I've decided to use this chapter as sort of a springboard for a series of discussions and poems. I'll start by focusing more directly on the chapter itself, and then I'll tie in some Christian theology and spiritual application. And then I will move through a series of six poems, uh, one from a paraphrase of the Tao Te Ching, uh, one from the biblical book of Ecclesiastes, and four of my own compositions. But basically, the majority of this episode is actually going to be a great big poetry slam. And although we will end up pretty far away from the face value reading of this chapter— I think that this episode is a great time to show an obvious example of how sometimes I find it's best to just pick out a thread of meaning and then follow it wherever it leads me. So with all of that said, let's go ahead and dive right in by listening to chapter 40 again uh, from a different translation this time. Uh, it's only four lines, but I'm going to repeat the second line from two different translations uh, that I think kind of gives a better and more well-rounded perspective. Uh, so let's go ahead and hear that now. 
Reversal is Tao's movement. Yielding is Tao's practice. Yielding is the function of the Tao. All things originate from being. Being originates from non-being. As one of the shortest chapters of the Tao Te Ching, chapter 40 leaves a lot open to the imagination. There are so many ways that we can interpret it and apply it, and in my opinion, none of them are right or wrong. Uh, Talking about right or wrong ways to use the Tao Te Ching, in my mind, is generally not very helpful. Uh, For me, the TTC is sort of a conversation partner. It stokes the fires of my imagination, and then it shines light on new ways of thinking that helps me explore my spirituality as part of the much larger and more specific narrative of Christianity. Uh, But still, there are parts of that narrative, that Christian narrative, that we often miss. Uh, For example, the self-giving nature of God. When Westerners think about God, we don't often associate the word giving with our theology. And if we do, it tends to lead to us talking about Christ, who gave his life for us, and then we stop there. After that, God is sovereign and powerful and very directive. Now, I don't necessarily disagree with those words, at least if we work very hard to define them well. I'm not particularly happy with many modern evangelical definitions of sovereignty and power, but I understand them. But the problem is that we miss the other side of the coin. The ancient song slash poem slash hymn in Philippians chapter 2 is one of the most important Christological passages in the New Testament. And it is centered around the idea that Christ, rather than holding on to his equality with God and grasping at his power and his sovereignty, he forfeited all of it in order to step down into solidarity with humanity. Theologians call this kenosis, or self-emptying, which is the noun form of the verb kenoo, which is found in this passage. Many scholars, such as Terence Fretheim, have written about how just by creating humanity, God was practicing self-giving love. By making people in his image, with free will and the power of imagination and creativity, God was actually relinquishing some of his own control. These words might sound blasphemous to many Christians, but they're actually just a logical conclusion unless you believe in total and absolute predestination and divine control of every choice we make, which unfortunately many Christians do, but I find to be very unfaithful to the biblical narrative. Now, coming back to the text, I understand that Lao Tzu wasn't writing about the monotheistic and personal God of the Abrahamic religions like Christianity and Judaism. Uh, He wasn't writing about any form of God at all, really. But still, I find this beautiful echo and reminder of Christian theology when I read these words that reversal is Tao's movement and yielding is Tao's practice or the function of the Tao. In his commentary on this section, Stefan Stenod writes, it's as if Tao makes it all happen by opening doors instead of closing them, by making way instead of showing the way. Now, I think we, can, we can't take this too far and find a direct parallel with any monotheistic view of God. Uh, for example, Agnieszka Solska's translation, which is totally another viable way of phrasing these words, it doesn't really have much of a touch point at all with Christian theology. And in fact, I think that if we take this too far, we can end up uh, simply with deism, 
which is the belief that whatever this sovereign creator God looks like, he's pretty much totally hands-off when it comes to creation. And so Solskjaer's uh, version says, Tao is always heading back to where it came from. Tao advances by not pressing forward. So all of this is really just a reminder that we can run into a lot of confusion and even theological pitfalls if we try to make the Tao Te Ching or make the Tao of the Tao Te Ching an exact parallel with the personal God of many modern religions. But then again, turning the the page, so to speak, we don't really have to take this as talking about the divine at all. If we remember that Tao simply means way, as in the way of the universe, then we can find a very different interpretation that tells us more about our lives than about the nature of the divine. John Braun Jr.'s translation, which is the one I read in the introduction, says, The way is both a journey that ends in return and a submission to this simple truth. The myriad creatures exist this way, from non-being to being and back, infinitely. The way is a journey that ends in return. That's what he says. And I love that uh, David Jones, in his reimagining of this chapter, he gives a beautiful illustration of this statement. Uh, he uses a poetic parable about a teacher and her students. Those who walk in the way have no need to fear death. Nature shows us that death and resurrection are built into the fabric of the universe, and Christian theology operates with this as a fundamental assumption. And so David Jones, working with that paradigm, he brings that point home through his poetic rendering of chapter 40 in a way that goes beyond what written prose or spoken lectures can do. So this is our first poem for today, and I think it's a fitting place to start because it's the one that's most closely connected to chapter 40. Uh, it's a paraphrase of it. And Jones writes, A teacher told her students, I will die soon. No, they cried, not you. They thought that because she was their teacher, she was immune to death. Everybody dies, she said. Get over it. That's the way. There is no resurrection without death. For the people of the way, death is not the opposite of life, but part of life. Endings do not always follow beginnings. Sometimes an ending can be the first chapter in a totally new beginning. The way cycles the seasons. Spring, summer, winter, fall, then Spring, summer, winter, fall. The people of the way cycle as the way cycles. Life, death, new life. Both Jones's paraphrase and John Braun's translation that I read earlier, the one that says the way is a journey that ends in return, they pick up on something that many commentators focus on, which is the cyclical nature of life. The Chinese character fun from the first line, which is usually translated as return, it comes from the motion of a hand plus the idea of turning something over. This return is most often associated with the cyclical processes of nature, which means that things return back to their source. It can also mean a turning within and a return to one's true nature. 
I've talked a lot about the cyclical nature of things before, and I've used this metaphor of the spiral when I've talked about both the cyclical nature of history and of our own personal spirituality. Like traveling up and down a helix, life is both cyclical and linear or progressive. In other words, each time that we come back around to the same issue, whether it is societal issues such as racism or personal questions about the authority of Scripture or the meaning of prayer or the nature of a relationship with God, we come to them with a history of wrestling with them before. We don't come in with a blank slate. And so hopefully we find ourselves dealing with these questions and issues on a deeper and richer level than we have before. Last year, I was thinking about both this topic and one of my absolute favorite themes in Christian faith, which is the idea of death and resurrection. Although death and resurrection don't appear directly in the Tao Te Ching, the idea of going out and then returning again is pervasive in the book. And this has some similar themes or connections. Going back to Fan, that Chinese character from the first line that means uh, return, or at least it's translated as return, uh, J.J.L. Divendak sees this character as, quote, the constant alternation between being and non-being, or I would add that we might call this death and resurrection. And so this helps explain the last half of the chapter, which says, all things originate from being, and being originates from non-being. Last year, I wrote a short poem called Cycles while I was thinking about this idea of death and resurrection. And I don't remember if I was writing this poem directly in response to something that I read in the Tao Te Ching, but I was definitely reading the book a lot at that point, and so I'm sure that it soaked through into this piece. I think it pairs nicely with the chapter, though, so I wanted to share it with you today, and I'll go ahead and read this as the second of our six poems for today. Cycles all of life runs in cycles. Inhale, exhale, the pattern of the universe. From the bigness of a nebula to the smallness of a seed, everything is death and rebirth. It's not our job to escape the cycle. It's to find the current and swim in it. Only in that current can we find the spirit of God. I'm going to be honest with you, I don't always feel like I know even what it means to find the Spirit of God, even though I wrote those words. I'm doing my best to find that current and swim in it, but I don't always feel like I'm doing a great job of it. Still, there are times where I'm able to look back over the past and make some connections in my life. Finding these threads of meaning and progression in our lives is what makes the spiral a spiral. I've learned that even when things seem meaninglessly cyclical, as though I'm not really making any progress at all, I need to keep pushing forward in trust that someday I'll look back and see those connections, be able to make that meaning. And one thing that the Tao Te Ching has taught me is not to get too down on myself when I'm not able to make those connections. But I think sometimes as Christians, we can get so caught up in pushing ourselves to be further along in the journey than we really are, that we forget to actually be right where we are. I was talking actually tonight with one of my uh, patrons, whose name is Jake, and he pointed out to me the way that the first chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes sounds a lot like the Tao Te Ching. 
uh, in this book of the Bible, which includes a collection of poetic verses, the author is wrestling with the meaning of life. He tries everything under the sun to find fulfillment and meaning, only to come up short on all counts. He cannot find any meaning. And so the book begins with his famous proclamation that everything is vanity, and that is, everything is empty and meaningless. And then he moves forward to describe the cyclical nature of life. And it occurred to me today that both Lao Tzu and the author of Ecclesiastes are acknowledging this same truth, but their response to it is dramatically different. Lao Tzu observes that life goes in cycles, and then he decides that the best thing for us to do is to make peace with that and to be present to the current moment and to go with the flow of the Tao in order to be the best people that we can be. On the other hand, in Ecclesiastes, the author sees the same truth, but he's so determined to make everything fit into a paradigm of meaning that he ends up only discouraged and frustrated by his failure to do so. I think that comparing the Tao Te Ching with this part of the book of Ecclesiastes teaches us that our attitude and our perspective on the world make a dramatic difference in the place that we end up. And so as we transition into the next section, let me go ahead and read Ecclesiastes chapter 1, which is the third in our series of poems for today. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, Look, this is something new. If it was here already long ago, it was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. So what can we do to avoid the depressing outlook created by constantly trying to force meaning out of life, while also staying away from the calm and flat acceptance that life really has no meaning at all and we just need to accept that and then make our peace with it? How do we find that balance? And so again, I think of the helix or the spiral. I think that this metaphor transcends both the Tao Te Ching and the book of Ecclesiastes when it comes to interpreting the cyclical nature of life. Our stories do have progression and development. And in fact, they are all woven together in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. Our lives, like the rest of the universe, are connected in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. And in fact, they are all part of a much bigger story as well. And for Christians, this story is that of God reconciling this broken world 
back to himself. But sometimes we are so caught up in the moment that we fail to see this progression. That's what happened to the author of Ecclesiastes. And I think in some ways even Lao Tzu practices sort of a willful ignorance of this fact, as though that is the ideal, to ignore, to, to pretend that there is no progression or progress. Shortly after I wrote the poem Cycles that I read a few minutes ago, uh, I drafted another one called The Eye of the Storm. This piece describes how certain events and experiences can then conjure up memories from our past in a way that helps us make sense of them. There are moments in our lives, or at least in my life, when suddenly something clicks and we're able to see patterns, we're able to make meaning of past events, even the ones that seemed totally meaningless or the ones that were incredibly painful. I'd like to read that poem now as sort of an expansion on this theme of what we've been exploring. The Eye of the Storm I sit and consider the eye of the storm as the past collides with the present. A gale-force reminder, it's happened before. In hindsight, the wind and the waves are transformed. I sit and consider the eye of the storm. A sight or a sound from earth or from heaven, a lance of lightning that comes unexpected, a thunderous memory fully restored. I sit and consider the eye of the storm as the past collides with the present. Although it can be really encouraging and helpful when we find these moments of meaning-making, as so much of our lives is spent in the in-between spaces. As we move forward and grow, we can find ourselves living in what Reiner Rilke called widening circles. As we gather more knowledge and more experience, we often experience disorientation. I can't speak for others, but from what I've seen in my own life, if my mind is not being stretched and even disturbed, then I'm probably stagnating. I'm not growing. This disorientation usually brings up many questions about even some of the most fundamental things. Rilke hit the nail on the head in his poem when he basically wrote that this confusion leads to even questions about our identity. Our lives are finite. We will never find all the answers, but we have to throw ourselves into the quest anyway, even if it means we have a hard time pinning down exactly who or even what we are in the grand scheme of things. His beautiful poem says, I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not complete this last one, but I give myself to it. I circle around God, around the primordial tower. I've been circling for thousands of years, and I still don't know. Am I a falcon, a storm, or a great song? I really love this poem so much. It's one of the most famous from Rilke's Book of Hours, which is a collection of his poetry that you really need to check out if you haven't read it before. But back around the same time that I wrote the last two poems, I was so inspired by this one that I drafted one based on the idea of the widening circles. I called it, I Live My Life in a Widening Orbit. This poem is, in a lot of ways, just a different perspective on the spiral metaphor. 
But it is significantly different because rather than focusing on the metaphor of diving deeper into specific things, it uses the picture of a planet orbiting around the sun or around some other star. With each revolution, the orbit then becomes wider, reaching farther and including more than it had before. And I recognize this is not a scientifically accurate metaphor, but I found it to be sort of a beautiful picture that talks about how I feel about my spirituality. And the thing then that makes it most scientifically inaccurate, but I think most spiritually revealing, is that as the orbit gets wider in the poem, it's easier to find myself getting off-center and then even wobbly as I try to progress faster than I really can, or if I press too hard in one direction while neglecting other areas of growth. And so I realize that I'm getting pretty far away from the Tao Te Ching as this episode progresses, and it probably seems like I am myself getting off-center in this episode, which actually fits the theme of the poem really nicely. But like I said before, because chapter 40 is so short, I'm using it sort of as a springboard for discussion. I found this thread of meaning in the chapter, and so I'm applying it to my own life, and then I'm following it through, uh, which for me is really what reading the TTC is all about. But anyway, with all of that said, I think that this poem actually does fit in really nicely with the idea from chapter 40 of going out and coming back, or of death and resurrection, and of the cyclical nature of life. So let me go ahead and read that now. I live my life in a widening orbit. I live my life in a widening orbit. I think that the center is God. The widening always includes what's before it, yet hungrily grasps as stardust implores it. I live my life in a widening orbit. Tilted, uneven, the circle is flawed. The center offset, I promptly ignore it. I live my life in a widening orbit, the uncentered center still God. The tension in this poem comes from the fact that many times when I'm trying to stretch my understanding of faith and spirituality wider and reach for a deeper and more inclusive understanding of my faith, I can find myself feeling off-centered. If God is at the center of gravity, if he's the life-giving star, there are times where I feel as though I've lost that center, that I've somehow become unfaithful to some core truths of my faith. And it's not a very comfortable place to be, but it's the place that I've found myself as I've continued to grow, and more often than not. I'm sure that I am getting many things wrong, but it also seems that I'm getting many things more right than I had before. And the only time that I think I get really off-center is when I ignore this tension, what I call the tilted and uneven circle in the poem. By ignoring it, as I said in the second stanza, that is the way that I really lose the center. Now, I'm not sure that there's a one-size-fits-all answer for how to get centered again, but I'm doing my best to return to and then re-examine some core doctrines and practices of Christian faith with fresh eyes, some doctrines and some practices that, to be frank, I've actually been ignoring for a while. But if I can be perfectly honest, sometimes I feel that to use words from Reiner Rilke again, I feel that I've been sent out beyond my recall. I've always been very confident that my faith in Christ radically transformed and even saved my life. 
I've been through years of crazy ministry experiences and unexpected callings with miraculous consequences. The most recent one, probably the most dramatic one, is my calling to move to the country of Lebanon to work with Syrian orphans and refugees, which is where I'm living now for the foreseeable future. But even though I'm now technically categorized as a quote-unquote missionary, I don't really feel like I fit that description, or at least I don't fit the stereotypes of it that I grew up with. So to continue being honest about it, there are times where I feel pretty convinced that I need to experience this returning back to the source that this chapter is all about. And yet, in classic non-dualistic fashion, like we talked about back in chapter 24, is sometimes the best way to pursue what we need is to allow or to pursue the opposite. Obviously, that statement needs to be qualified, which you can get if you go back and listen to episode 24. But I've considered that part of seeking that return back to the center, for me, is not necessarily to backtrack and go backwards in my journey, but to continue to press into the journey that I'm already on. I recognize that sounds confusing, but I think that Rilke's poem, or at least another one than the one I've already read, gets at what I'm saying here. He wrote, You sent out beyond your recall. Go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Nearby is the country they call life. I'm doing my best to embody Christ to those around me, especially the poor and traumatized children that I work with. But what does it mean to go to the limits of my longing? And how will that lead me to what he calls the country they call life? To be honest with you, these are not rhetorical questions. They're things that I'm genuinely wrestling with. But looking back to chapter 40 of the Tao Te Ching, returning is the movement of the Tao. And I believe that if I'm committed to following the flow, the flow that is actually set by the work of the Holy Spirit of Christ, as God works to reconcile all things to God's self, then I will find myself caught up in that returning movement. I do believe that my longing is pure, despite all of my faults and failings. And so I'm committed to pursuing that longing, which is really just a longing for a holistic and a more healthy spirituality that is united with God. Marshall Davis's translation of chapter 40 really captures this idea and I think provides some words of encouragement, at least to me. He writes, Everything returns to God. That is the receptive love of God. Heaven and earth and everything in them came into existence out of nothing. Still, it's all very obscure, right? Chapter 40 of the Tao Te Ching is obscure, and just about every poem that I've shared in this episode has as much mystery and darkness as it does clarity. And with that said, I thought it would be best to end the episode with a final poem that I wrote from about the same time as the other three that I've shared today. Uh, And this poem also was inspired by Rilke's idea of going to the limits of your longing. To be honest with you, I'm still captivated by that phrase, by that vision that he casts. Although I can't put words into exactly what it means, something about it rings so true with me in a way that only a poem can express. And so rather than trying to explain and comment on this piece that I wrote, I'm just going to simply read it and I'll let you do with it what you will as I close out the episode. Um, In some ways it relates back to so much of what we've talked about today and in other ways it just 
totally sort of turns a new page or starts a new chapter. But I invite you to listen to it and, and wrestle with it and bring it into dialogue with everything that we've heard today and to make your own conclusions. So let me go ahead and read that now. It's called The Edge of My Longing. I traveled to the edge of my longing to find a curved horizon, a land of gold, a place where the longing was no longer mine, light from all sides, no shadows to hide, yet try as I might, light too bright for my eyes. I traveled to the edge of my longing to find the limit of time, so young, so old, like the foggy veil in the story that's told, Wrapped by the centuries, cracked by the blind, I traveled to the edge of my longing to find a curved horizon, a land of gold. Thanks so much for listening to this episode today. I realized that it was one that was quite different from anything I've done before. Um, So thank you for listening and and coming to the end of the show. Uh, As always, I want to ask you to just consider doing three things. Uh, First of all, just leave a five-star rating and a review if your app has uh, that feature in it. Uh, Second of all, please consider sharing this with a friend. Um, The best way to gain new listeners is obviously through uh, recommendations from people you know and trust. There are many podcasts out there, and so people have a lot of choices of what to listen to. But most of the new listeners that I've spoken with heard about the show through a friend. So I'd I'd ask you to please consider doing that. And then third and finally, I'd ask you to Uh, Think about um, becoming a patron at the Patreon page for the um, Christian Reads the Doubt Aging podcast. Um, Basically, you can go ahead and sign up on Patreon for a small monthly contribution, anywhere from $2 to $15 a month. And in exchange for that, you will get access to um, all kinds of cool benefits, such as early access to new episodes and uh, access to a private Facebook group where I share lots of things, stuff like that. I'm currently working, actually, on thinking about new content, uh, exclusive content for uh, patrons from the Patreon site. So I'm not quite sure what that will look like yet, but if you have any ideas that you'd like to share with me, anything that would uh, make you feel like it is worth it to sign up and contribute, uh, please reach out and let me know. Uh, You can contact me, actually, on my blog, where I have, obviously, the series about CRTTC, as well as lots of other articles on faith and spirituality. And that is at coryfar.com. So go ahead and check that out. It's coryfar.com, C-O-R-E-Y-F-A-R-R.com. So again, thanks so much for listening. Grace and peace.